Welcome, and thank you for listening to Grace Heritage Church Audio, building a household of faith on a foundation of grace. Visit us online at graceheritage.org. Please stay tuned after the message for more information. Thank you. Please turn with me to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Hebrews just prior to the book of James. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. I'll give a moment to get there. Let's read the passage together. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In our scripture reading this morning in Psalm 19, we were reminded of the fact that there is a sense in which God speaks to us through creation. The psalmist says that the heavens declare to us the glory of God. Romans chapter 1 reinforces this truth. There we read in verse 20 that God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Through the creation, God reveals certain things about Himself, namely, in these passages, His glory, His divine nature, His eternal power. And for that reason alone, Romans tells us, for for what is evident as we simply look around every day and gaze at creation, We are accountable to God. We are... Every human should honor God and give Him thanks for simply what is evident as we look around. And if we don't, we are condemned without excuse. So God does reveal things through His creation, but enough to hold us guilty before Him if we fail to recognize it and respond to it. But in creation, we can only glimpse so much, as Mike said in his prayer... They, there, there are certain questions that cannot be answered by simply observing the creation around us. We, we learn very little about ourselves. We learn very little about God's nature and specific attributes. It leaves some questions unanswered. But thanks be to God, He has not left us there with creation alone. In God's kindness, there is another kind of revelation, a revelation in words that we can comprehend with our minds. Psalm 19 goes on to speak of that revelation. A kind of revelation that speaks more clearly about God. One that is perfect and sure, right and true. One that moves beyond mere thoughts and knowledge. One that's able to influence the very meditations of our heart. Have you ever contemplated the fact that God chose to communicate to us at all? That that was His original design. You'll remember in the garden, God spoke with Adam. We ought to marvel at the fact that God has revealed anything to us. Nothing demanded that He do it, and yet He has. Look with me in our text in chapter 1, in verse 1, skipping over a few things, something that's easy to miss in the text, that's something that's just assumed. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke. He spoke. Despite our sinfulness, despite the fall, 
Despite our suppression of truth that is evident all around us, God still chose to communicate to sinful men. And we ought to marvel at that. I think this passage in Hebrews is a reflection on those revelations. The revelation of God. The ways that He has communicated to us. It instructs us to think rightly about those revelations and then I believe beyond that to respond rightly to them. And there are two things I'd like to, to consider to draw out of the text and to point out this morning. First, how God has revealed things to us. How He's done it. And I believe that the text points out in specific two ways and it makes a distinction between those two ways, contrasting them to highlight the differences. But then also, and this is just the overview of where we're going, secondly, to consider what it is that those two ways communicate to us. What it is that they reveal. And here, to compare them, to recognize that although there are distinctions to be made between the two, there is a continuity between them. Specifically in their message. So that's what what we're looking at this morning. Um, Consider with me first how God has revealed things to us. The contrast of two ways. Notice in verse 1, the first way, it speaks of God speaking, or God has spoke to the fathers by the prophets. Now, the prophets were men that God had chose to speak to His people. They were no different, really, than you and I. I mean, they were just normal people. They were sinful just the same. Um, but God chose them in His wisdom to be the instruments through which He communicated to His people. They were, in effect, the mouthpiece of God. Their function that we see modeled throughout the prophets in the Old Testament is that they would receive a word from God and they would go to the people and they would say, Thus says the Lord. So God spoke through the prophets. And verse 1 is one entire, or one long series of descriptions about this revelation. Notice first when it occurred. It's said to have taken place long ago, in times past. And from the writer's perspective, it's a thing of the past. In some sense, it's the way that God used to do things. It's the old way, at least in contrast to what we'll speak about in a minute in verse 2. But notice specifically the purposeful repetition of plurality. God spoke through prophets, plural, many of them. He did not just choose one man to speak through, but many of them. And not only that, but at many times. It wasn't as though God chose to reveal everything that He had to reveal to a bunch of men at one point in history, but it was throughout time. It was throughout history, throughout the years, throughout generations, at many times, but also many ways. The method by which he communicated to the prophet and through the prophet varied. Consider the variety in the scriptures. Moses, for instance. God spoke directly to Moses. Face to face, we're told, though in some sense veiled as he delivered to him the commandments. Elijah in 1 Kings. God spoke through Elijah primarily through performing powerful signs and wonders at his hand, declaring that he is supreme above all else. Isaiah, God gave Isaiah a heavenly vision. He was able to glimpse in chapter 6 into the throne room of God, to see God seated on the throne with seraphims before Him, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Or Ezekiel or Hosea, God used them. Their, their actual lives were assigned to the people. Their life was the message. Isaiah at one po- or, I'm sorry, Ezekiel at one point is told to lie on his side for 390 days before the people to visually represent to them the 390 years that they will be in captivity. Hosea, his marriage was his message. God told him to go marry a prostitute. And even when she committed adultery, he said, go, love her again. His marriage was to communicate to the people, 
show them a picture of God's relentless, steadfast love for His people, even in the midst of their adulterous idolatry. So God used many ways, many times, and many different prophets. And all of these descriptions seem to be grouped together in this verse, I believe emphasizing and reinforcing the idea that there was some sort of incompleteness about this type of revelation. Um, it was true. It was God's Word to us. But, and so we don't, we're not belittling it, but it was lacking fullness, or perhaps better said, it was awaiting a completion in itself. It was as if God's revelation was a puzzle that He had been revealing, and all analogies are bad, but it was as if it was a, a puzzle, and God had been using the prophets to give to us a piece or two at a time throughout the ages at many times in many ways, revealing the big picture to us. But yet, with the prophets, each was incomplete. Each piece wasn't enough to show us the fullness of what the big picture was. And even at the fullness of all the prophets, the, the, the picture was still vague. There were still, it was still awaiting a completion. Something was still lacking. Many men, many times, in many ways were needed because no one man... No one prophet, no one time, or no one way was sufficient to reveal to us the fullness of what God had been communicating. And so it was a progressive and unfolding revelation. In God's kindness, these revelations have been recorded for us. I believe we hold them in the Old Testament from the books that Moses wrote all the way through the prophet of Malachi. That This is the revelation of the prophets that in God's kindness has been recorded for us that this verse speaks about. But the revelation was lacking and awaiting fulfillment, which brings us to verse 2 in the second way by which God has spoken to us. Scripture says, In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And notice the contrast. These things are set purposely side by side. Long ago, but now, in these last days, something new. By the prophets, and there were many of them, but now, by the Son, one Son, singular, Many ways, many times, and I believe implied and later developed in the book of Hebrews, one way, once for all. These things are contrasted. There is an emphasis on one. One way, once for all, um, and one Son. Why? Because the Son brings fullness. The Son brings fullness and completion. And I believe that's the purpose of what follows in the rest of verse 2 and the rest of verse 3. Verses 2 and 3 proclaim after that seven glorious truths about the Son which declare to us not only the fullness of the revelation that He has brought in Himself, but also why He is unique and superior to the prophets of old. And we'll come back to those seven things in closing. But for now, we need to make sure that because we contrast these two things, we're not tempted to think that they have absolutely nothing in common because they do. And so consider secondly what these two ways reveal to us, here emphasizing a comparison of their one message. Comparison of their one message. The way that God spoke through the prophets and the way that He spoke through the Son were different, but what they were communicating, their message, was the same. It's the same message. There is a unity. There is a continuity. But what is the message? What is it that God had been revealing we're often tempted to think in our culture and in many of our churches that the, the, the main idea behind or the overarching theme 
in God's revelation to us in the Scriptures is one big unfolding plan of the redemption of man. Think about that. We're tempted to think that it's one big unfolding plan or unfolding drama of redemption of man. And in a sense, that's true. But we need to be careful that we don't place man at the center of God's universe. Because, yes, the revelation that we hold in our, in, in our hands is Scripture. The Bible does communicate a storyline. It does communicate a plan of redemption. From the fall of man in Genesis, to the coming of the Son, to the, re, to the return of the Son at the end. Man is not the focus. God is the focus. It is His glory. It is His work in the life of men. And it is His redemption of man. We need to beware of placing ourselves at the center and usurping God's rightful place. God has revealed through the prophets and through the sons primarily to make Himself known. Don't miss that. That's the, the point that I want to drive home. God was revealing the intention of His revelation was to make Himself known. Again and again throughout the Scriptures, God declares, I tell you this, I've done this, or I will do this for my name, for my sake, or for my glory. This was the message of creation in Psalm 19. The heavens what? Declare the glory of God. This was the message of the prophets to Moses. The law and the commandments given through Moses are primarily a reflection of the nature and character of God. And so God prefaces all the Ten Commandments with I am the Lord your God. And so in light of that, this is how you live. To Isaiah, consider Isaiah 43, 25. God speaks of forgiving His people. And this is how He phrases it. I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Or in the book of Ezekiel, I've been reading Ezekiel lately just because I haven't read it in a long time. And... I began to notice there's a, a common theme, so I started picking up on it. And nearly the entire book is structured this way. Ezekiel says, The word of the Lord came to me. And he goes over here and he says, Thus says the Lord, God speaks, I will do this. I will bring deliverance. I will bring judgment. I will bring wrath. I will save you so that you may know that I am the Lord. Again and again and again, he keeps saying that. Thus says the Lord, I'm going to do this so that you will know that I am the Lord. So I went through and I counted. There's 48 books in Ezekiel. And, and he says it over 70 times. Over 70 times he emphasizes the truth that the reason that he's working in history, the reason that he's redeeming his people, the reason that he's bringing punishment for their sin and rebellion is for his own sake. And so that they might know who he is. So God's primary purpose in revealing himself through the prophets and through the Son is to reveal Himself. So, I just got ahead of myself, but when we come to the Son, what's His message? Is it any different? If the prophets have been revealing God, is the Son's message any different? No. The Son is also revealing God. But Christ brings a fullness to this revelation because He reveals God in a unique way. In Himself. He is God. In Christ, God is fully revealed. Which is why Jesus can say to the two men walking on the road to Emmaus after His resurrection, which is recorded in Luke chapter 24, 26-27, O foolish ones, 
and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Or in John 5.39, Christ says to the Pharisees, the scriptures bear witness about me. This is why the Son brings more clarity than the prophets. This is why He brings about a fullness because Christ is the message. He is the message that has been revealed. If we were to go back to the puzzle illustration, yes, the the prophets left pieces that were missing. And the Son does fill in those missing pieces. But the Son is not just another piece of the puzzle. He's not just another prophet. He's not just another portion of the message. He is the message. He is the picture. God was revealing Himself. If Christ fills it in, Christ is the picture. Look in verse 3 in Hebrews 1. Verse 3, He says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. The radiance of the glory of God. Christ radiates or displays in a way that the sun shines forth rays of sunlight. Christ displays and radiates the glory of God. He communicates to us the glory of God. The prophets of old had spoken about the glory of God. They spoke about it and they, it, they understood it to the point that it was revealed to them and they were given glimpses of it in visions. But Christ the Son is supreme because He is that glory. He is that beauty. He is that brightness. More than that, he's said to be the exact imprint of his nature. And the language being used there is that of a, a, a stamp or a dye that is used to make an impression in, in a surface that is softer. So, for instance, if you have a, a stamp or, or a dye that has a carved image on it, and you impress that in wax, and you let the wax dry, and you pull it out, the image that's in the wax is the exact imprint of the image that is on the stamp. That's that's what's being communicated here, that Christ is the exact imprint in His being, in His nature of God. This is His claim to His deity. But it's also a claim to to the distinction. So there again, we're in the depths of the mystery of the triune, God. That He is somehow separate and yet He is the very image, the exact imprint of God in His nature. And so, in that way, in Jesus, we perceive the fullness of God the fullness of the revelation about God. And so God's primary purpose in both communicating and revealing through the prophets and communicating and revealing through the Son was to reveal Himself. But only the Son does that perfectly because the Son is the fullness of that revelation. And here, I want to pause from the text for a minute and just stop and back up and to see these verses in the context of the whole of the book of Hebrews. Because this comparison contrast theme, it's not, it's not isolated. It's all throughout the book of Hebrews. It's a purposeful structure if you, were to, if you were to give the, book of, the whole book a, a theme, it would be the supremacy of Christ, that He is supreme above all else. And the letter was originally written to Jewish Christians, a people who had grown up in Judaism and who had embraced and cherished the revelation of the prophets. They cherished it. That was their only scriptures But these Jews were not Jews in the way that we think of Jews today who reject Christ. These Jews had embraced the teaching of verse 2. They believed that in the Son there was a fullness of the revelation of God. 
They embraced that. They believed that he was the Messiah who was awaited, who had been awaited. But so they were of Jewish descent, but they had embraced these teachings, and it was because of that they were being accused of rejecting their Jewish heritage. They were being accused of rejecting the revelation of the prophets because they had embraced the revelation of the Son. And because of that, they faced intense persecution. We read about it later in in the book, in the context in which the original recipients of this letter were in the midst of intense persecution at the hands of the Jews and at the hands of the Roman Empire. Um, Torture and death were very likely for them. And so the writer exhorts them to persevere, to stand strong in their commitment to Christ and that as they stood strong in their commitment to Christ, they would remain in complete continuity with the revelation of the prophets. That they would not be having to give up anything at all because the Son had brought fulfillment to that. It wasn't though He just set it aside and it was totally something different. There was the continuity there. And the great, their great temptation was that they began to drift back into their old traditions and practices which were safe, unthreatening, socially acceptable. But in order for them to go back into old practices and back into old traditions, knowing and believing that the revelation had been superseded in the coming of the Son, in order for them to go back, they would have to step over Christ. They would have to ignore Him. And they would have to reject Him. It wasn't possible to go back to something old when it had been fulfilled. And so with severe warnings, the writer pleads that these Jewish Christians embrace Christ. And what could possibly motivate them? What could motivate them to overlook their circumstances and to hold firm? And to do this, the motivation he uses is Christ Himself. And He exalts Christ. So the writer of Hebrews exalts Christ before them to show that He is excellent and supreme to show that He is worthy, to show that they need to embrace Him and they need to love Him and they need to cherish Him and they need to not reject Him. Again and again, the message is do not compromise. Their motivation was to persevere was Christ. And so one by one, the author holds up these traditions that were prized by the Jewish, uh, by the Jews. Good things that God had revealed, ways of worship and such that He had revealed through the prophets. They were good things. But now they had been superseded in the sun. And so, in light of them, the old fades in, the comp- in comparison with the supremacy of Christ. So in our text, the, the prophets of old were good. But now, Christ the Son is superior. And that pattern continues throughout the book of Hebrews. The writer goes on to speak of angels. They were God's ministering spirits. But Christ the Son is superior. Moses was a faithful servant to God. These were all things that the Jews prized and cherished. He was a faithful servant, but Christ the Son is superior. Aaron was God's faithful high priest, but Christ is the true great high priest, and He is superior. The Old Covenant ceremonial law, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, they were but shadows pointing toward Christ for the reality that Christ is the sacrifice. His body was the tent. And so He is superior So the writer demonstrates the lavish excellence and worth of Christ. That's their motivation to hold strong. That if they would admire Him, they would be less likely to reject Him in their persecution. And so these are great truths for us to consider, but how do we make application of a text like this? 
what, what should be our response? Well, if God has been revealing Himself through creation, through the prophets, and through the Son, so that we might know who He is rightly, understanding Him correctly, and that we might respond to Him properly, if that was His purpose, and if the revelation of creation demanded that we honor Him and we give thanks to Him as a result of it, how much more ought we to worship and honor and give thanks to Him with the fullness of the revelation that we now have in the Son? And so, I mentioned earlier that, um, that in verses 2 and 3, there were seven glorious truths about the Son. Um, I believe our response should be one of adoration and worship to exalt Christ in our thinking and in our hearts. And so these seven truths about the Son, I would like for them to be the application to the sermon. Because there are seven reasons why we ought to worship Him and adore Him. And so my prayer is that we'll meditate on what these things say to us about Christ and His fullness, what they reveal to us about God. And so we'll consider each of these quickly. Um, we don't have time to consider them in depth, but run through them, uh, making a few comments about them. First, it says, speaking about the creation, heaven and earth, all things, it says that Christ is the heir of all things. That all things in the universe rightfully belong to Him. He lays complete claim over everything that happens. Everything, including everything in your life. The air that you breathe is His. The way that we live, what we do, what we think, what we say. Our lives are His. Consider that He is the heir of all things. And He is so precisely because secondly, it was through Christ that God created the world. He created all things. Colossians 1.16 reinforces this truth that by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him. In the depths of the mystery of the Trinity, it's the Son that's said to be the one who carried out the task of creating. So God spoke the Word and it was the Word of God in the Son that carried out that task. So not only is He the Creator of all things and the Heir of all things, but thirdly, He sustains all things. He upholds the universe by the Word of His power. By simply speaking, the Scripture says that He orders all things. That He keeps things in order. He sustains them. Again, Colossians 1.17 follows that same train of thought and confirms that in Him all things hold together. And to the recipients of this letter dealing with persecution, consider what that would have meant to them. That Christ, the one they were embracing, was upholding all things. That He was upholding them. That includes them, certainly. If He is upholding all things, He is able to uphold them. And I think that was a tremendous encouragement to them and it should be just as much of an encouragement to us that whatever it is that we deal with, whatever it is that we struggle with, whatever stress might occupy us, at any point in our life we face persecution or hardship or anything, if Christ is upholding all things, will He not, beloved, uphold us? Will He not? Do not the Scriptures tell us that? Do, not, do, do they not say that... Um, 
that God will carry us on to completion, that He works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So let these things be reasons to worship Him and an encouragement to our hearts. Fifth, or fourth and fifth, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And we've spoken of those already, so I won't repeat what I've said because those things reveal to us God in fullness. Those are claims to deity. Sixth, Christ provided purification for sins. This describes His work to us, His work on our behalf on the cross. Today's Palm Sunday. It's a day that we commemorate the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. He headed into Jerusalem knowing that the cross awaited Him. With full knowledge of it, He was hailed as King. He was paraded into the city. They put palm branches before Him and they shouted out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet only days later, that very same crowd that hailed Him as King was shouting out, Crucify Him. He was betrayed. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was crucified. The very one who was worthy of all honor and worship, the creator, the sustainer, and heir of all things, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, was crushed for our iniquity. He was crushed for our iniquity. He who was worthy of the Father's love instead bore the Father's wrath, our wrath. He bore it. And it says that He made purification for our sins as a sacrifice. He cleansed us. This is the Gospel. We rejoice in this. Notice though, He has always been the Creator. He has always been the Sustainer. He will always be the heir of all things. He has always been the radiance of God's glory. He has always been the exact imprint of God's nature. But it was once for all that He provided purification for sins. This is confirmed. Nine Hebrews 9.26 says, He has, Christ, appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And in 10.14, By a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified or made holy. We do not add to this. It is His work alone which is able to to cleanse us. And it enables us to stand before the radiance of His glory which would consume us because of our sin. He purifies us. And we are cleansed. Completely cleansed. How do we know that? Because His work is done. Seventh. seventh, Because He is sitting. He has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. His work is finished. He is now sitting down. The one who was hailed as king as he entered into the city that Palm Sunday was later mocked as king as they placed the crown of thorns on him and a robe on him and nailed a plaque to the cross that said, this is the king of the Jews. That very one is now rightfully, finally seated and reigning as king. And He has been exalted to the right hand of the Majesty on high. And for that reason, we are told in Hebrews 10.22 that we can draw near to God with full 
assurance of faith because He is able to save those who draw near to God through Him. For He is now seated at the right hand of God and ever lives to make intercession for Him. We just sang about that in the song right before I came up here. That He is ever seated at the right hand of God. And what He's doing there is interceding for us. And so we all flee to Christ. Fellow believers, to rest secure in His promises. He is able to save us to the very end. That we need not fear death. He has defeated it. We can glory in Him and His sacrifice for us. And for one who may not know Him, flee to Him. He is able to purify you from sin. You're dead in transgressions, the Scripture says, but He is able to purify you from your sin and to rescue you from the dominion of darkness and from death and doom and eternal destruction that awaits. What a glorious picture this is of this exalted reigning Savior pleading before God on our behalf, pleading for mercy. Oh, do worship Him. Worship Him. Let's pray. God, the Scriptures are clear that You are to be at the very center of everything in our life and that You work in our lives for Your purposes. And for that we give You thanks that You are sovereign and supreme. We thank You for the revelation we have that You have revealed Yourself to us that we perceive a fullness of that filtered through humanity in the person of Christ and that He has provided the purification we need for our sins. He has saved us. We have embraced the Gospel and we have confidence to draw near to You now in light of these things. God, I pray that we would not just think lofty thoughts, but God, that we would respond properly to scriptures like these. Knowledge puffs up, you tell us. Paul tells us in Corinthians. God, I pray that as we think great and true thoughts about you, God, that our hearts would be stirred. That we would respond appropriately in love and adoration of you as, as to who you communicate yourself to be. And God, that our lives would be a worshipful expression of joy in that truth. And so help us, God. Help us to love You more and to trust You. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Grace Heritage Church meets in Auburn, Alabama. Services are held at 9.30 a.m. on Sunday morning at the Best Western on the corner of college and university.